right, next up, guys, we have Peter Todd. Uh, very honored to have Peter Todd. Although I did have to pay a little extra for his presence, uh, full disclosure. Uh, but he allowed me to pay him in Monero, but only half in Monero. He required that I pay the other half using Bitcoin. Let me get to it, but actually using Bitcoin Lightning. And he, uh, he forced me to do this. So through coercion, I, I have adopted Bitcoin Lightning. Um, and I got to tell you, Matt, it was, it, was a pain, it was a pain in the ass. I'm not going to lie. It was a pain in the ass. I had to pay, I had to pay like eight, four, four or eight bucks to open up a channel. And then my first transaction ended up being more expensive than a typical Monero payment. But um, he's a good sport. Uh, actually, Peter Todd is the reason I kind of really first got into Monero. Uh, back in the day, I, I, would list, I heard him on various podcasts talking about the lack of fungibility in Bitcoin, the lack of privacy, potentially, right? The, these ideas and uh, being on the lookout for other solutions. And he would mention and talk about Monero. And uh, that's kind of what led me down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole. But without, I mean, the Monero rabbit hole. Without any further ado, Peter Todd, take it away, guys. Thank you. All right. So speaking of fees, I mean, really what this talk is about is how to go and pay miners. And, you know, if I'm going to talk about how to go pay miners, like we really got to go talk about, you know, what is the role of proof-of-work mining? I mean, why do we have this, you know? I mean, is it about issuing new coins? Well, first of all, go say straight off. Mining is not about making new coins. The fact it does is purely an implementation detail. You know, the reason why we have mining, why we have proof-of-work, is to make the chain hard to rewrite. Every single block that gets created is associated with some provable work that's done, which ultimately traces back to energy usage. And you know... As blocks are created, the things that are deeper down in the chain are going to be more and more and more expensive to go rewrite. You know, I mean, I personally um, run Open Timestamps, which is timestamping service. And in my case, with Open Timestamps, I mean, there's times when you might go reference a block like four years ago, which is as the client outputs of like 10 nuclear power plants running continuously to, you know, go and rewrite. But the bigger question is, all right, that's all well and good. Well, how do we go pay for this? I mean... Where does that money come from? And this is block rewards um, for Bitcoin. Um, don't know how well you can see this, but the yellow line is overall rewards, and the green line is what they're worth in US dollars. And if you look at that yellow line, you can see how it goes like down, down. Well, that's, of course, the famous Bitcoin subsidy halving, where it started off at 50 coins, and it dropped 25, and 12.5, and a yeah, now it's at 6.25, and it'll drop yet again. In the long run, on Bitcoin, that subsidy goes to zero. Now, economically, of course, what matters is how does the subsidy reflect real value? And U.S. dollars is a reasonable, you know, reasonable approximation of that. And it's kind of gone up, it's kind of gone down, it's a whole mess. But the notable thing is, well, if, it's, if all of this... If the subsidy is going to go to zero eventually, you have to go pay for everything with fees. And here's a chart of the block fees. And they've gone up some enormous spikes before. But for the most part, block fees have been fairly low. And if you have a proof-of-work currency and you're only paying it with fees, 
this is potentially troublesome because you always want to have some reason to go create a new block. First of all, because you want new blocks to keep on happening. And second, because there are also cases where miners might want to reorganize the blockchain. Like let's suppose, for example, there's a bunch of high fees and then there's no more fees. Well, a miner coming after the high fees might say, hang on a second, I'd much rather go reorganize the chain and get those fees for myself. And as it turns out, only big miners can go do this profitably. And we don't want that. We want anyone who's mining to have roughly equal chances of earning money with a given capital investment. You know, that's what keeps mining decentralized. And I'll, frankly, that's just as true of Monero too. I mean, Monero, say what you want, but the proof of work, the fact is Monero still has these kinds of incentives with mining pools. And, you know, regardless of how the proof of work's calculated, there's this kind of incentive. Now, recently, of course, on Bitcoin, if you've been following things, you may have heard about all the inscription stuff where people are paying tons and tons of money. Um, I, I believe current, uh, something like $10 million in the past couple months to get inscriptions mined. And, you know, for a miner's point of view, this is great. I mean, for the first time in Bitcoin's history, as of today, we might finally have a block that sort of organically has more transaction fees than block reward. This has happened in the past before, but usually for things like, well, someone did a weird auction a couple weeks ago where, for highly technical reasons, it created a ton of fees. There's also been a few times when people have accidentally sent very, very large fee transactions. But today might be the first time we actually flip that subsidy versus fees organically, if you will. On the other hand, I mean, that particular view of inscriptions was something a couple months ago. This is what inscriptions look like today, and it's a completely different market. Yes, this particular way of doing inscriptions is driving fees, but, you know, will this be true in six months? Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, we just don't know how these things will go drive fees. You know, will this lead to sustainable demand? Will it not? Honestly, I don't know. And I think, as I'll argue on later, it would be much better to go and have a system where you didn't have to go and do all, you know, have all these arguments. And one way of doing it, of course, what Monero has done, which is uh, tail emission. So tail emission is kind of interesting because in many ways, it's the simplest possible way to pay for mining security. Every block, you create some coins out of thin air. It's a fixed amount, fixed amount forever. And the math of this, interestingly, converges to a stable monetary supply. You know, tail emission doesn't actually mean that the money supply is unlimited. And why really comes down to people lose money. Like there are coins in existence which are lost. The private keys for them are lost. And absent a cryptography breakthrough, which calls into question everything, those coins will never move again. And why this happens, well, I'll start off with a more mathy version of it. I mean, let's suppose you have, you know, the function N of T of your coin supply and it starts off at some number and then, you know, you can go model as a slope K and you can take your derivative of it. Now, that's a simple thing. With lost coins, mathematically, what's interesting is the derivative of the coin supply includes a certain percentage lambda of all the coins out there, the you know, lambda being your lost coins rate. So as that goes up, you have your lost coins. And, you know, you can do some math on it. I mean, frankly, I use Wolfram Alpha to figure this out. But long story short, is in the long run, it converges to K over lambda. Why? Well, you can go take notes on this, but I think there's a much simpler way to look at this. 
Imagine you have a hose in a bucket, and the bucket's got a hole in the bottom. If you do this and put water into that bucket at a fixed rate, because the amount of water coming out of that bucket varies by the level in the bucket, it will eventually converge to a stable equilibrium. If you want to try it, go ahead, get a bucket, put a hole in it. it this, this actually works, and the math is exactly the same. The reason why this works is because the pressure pushing coins out is the same either way. If you don't want to believe me, well, like I say, go try it yourself. And I think what's interesting about this is when I describe this phenomenon to people, how the actual monetary supply converges, one of the common questions get, well, how do you know if the coins are lost? I mean, certainly, the, how do you know? I mean, some coins may, might not really be lost. Maybe the private keys are. And well, I think this gets down to what modeling really means. You know, when we talk about modeling these things, you've got to remember, we're using math to better understand a system. If we do our math properly, it doesn't matter the details of exactly what coins are lost or not. You know, we have a, a system might not be a physical system, but it's still a system. And we know it behaves by rules. And in our case, one of the rules set in stone is, look, inevitably coins will get lost. I mean, frankly, in this room, I'm sure if we put up hands for, you know, how many people have accidentally lost a coin, everyone in this room pretty much is going to have to put up their hand. Like it happens. And as long as you have new coins being created and coins being lost, this is what will happen in the long run. You will have a stable monetary supply. Of course, the numbers won't look stable. You know, the number of coins in existence will appear to rise indefinitely, but the economics don't work that way. The economics do work. Pe people who lose coins, they are out of the money supply. So I think this is interesting, but If you do this, well, how do you actually do this? I mean, how do, how do you go change this? Well, in Monero's case, it was pretty simple. Monero community as a whole was willing to do hard forks. Um, I, I wouldn't know off the top of my head how many hard forks Monero's done, but I think it's like four or something, five, higher, 10. Yeah. I mean, how many were, how many were actually real in the sense they really needed? Or like, I, I, I don't know the details on this, but you know, certainly more than one and, you know, in Bitcoin's case, of course, that number is a lot less. But in Monero, you were willing to go do a hard fork. And uh, the hard fork that made tail mission happen, somewhere in the code, you just said, well, rather than making this number go down, we're just going to make it constant as of this block height or however the heck it was done. Very, very simple. Now... Monero had an easy time implementing this, so now you really got to ask, well... If you do this, what are the economics? I mean, what does, what does this lost coin stuff really mean? Well, you know, of all the ways to pay for mining security, I think what's interesting about this lost coin stuff is, I mean, to give you an example, like the Bitcoin's price subsidy where it gets cut in half every time, that's a very arbitrary thing. You know, these cuts in half, they don't directly map to any real world economics. In real-world economics is, what is a Bitcoin worth? You know, what is a Monero worth? Saying that the subsidy will just cut in half every four years is just an arbitrary thing. And, you know, for technical reasons, arguably it was a terrible idea because having the subsidy suddenly get cut in half 
can result in cases where miners suddenly go bankrupt and they can't make blocks for uh, for any amount of money and you know make blocks profitably for any amount of money. So it's it's a weird thing to have, but more importantly, it's arbitrary. But with tail emission, because in the long run, tail emission converges to lost coins, the economics really say that we will send the amount of money to miners equal to the amount of money people lose by accident. And remember, tail emission is inflationary in the sense that if not for this, your coins would deflate in value because as coins get lost, everyone else's coins become more valuable. The two just happen to go cancel out. Now, will miners make enough money? Well, let's go back. What, what is the purpose of proof-of-work security? It is to defeat a 51% attack and also to go keep mining decentralized. Now, I hate to say this, but when it comes to defeating 51% attacks, that's a really difficult thing to model. We, we really don't know. I mean, how much money does the U.S. government have budgeted to killing Bitcoin? I don't know. None of us know. Certainly it could. I mean, the U.S. government could decide to kill Bitcoin by just launching all the nukes and killing all life on the planet. You know, that is one way to kill Bitcoin. But they're probably not going to do that because that has too much collateral damage. On the other hand, I mean, if the proof-of-work security was zero, I might go kill Bitcoin just for fun. It'd be kind of cool. Do a 51% tax, see all this Bitcoin stuff die. So obviously there is a range there where you, where you have enough money to defeat your likely attackers, and you certainly don't want to have too little. And I think an argument with tail emission is, well, we got to pay something. Let's go pay something that's big enough that is not zero and also small enough that's not unaffordable. The rate of lost coins might not be enough to keep attackers away, but it certainly is something that's affordable because that's the money you lose by accident. If you stop losing it by accident, I mean, it'll, it'll adjust, but that is what it is. Now, can Bitcoin add tail emission? Well, for a technical perspective, yes, it could. I mean, Bitcoin can, in theory, do hard forks if everyone agrees to it. Early in Bitcoin's history, there's actually an example of probably the ultimate hard fork, which is the Bitcoin white paper. It made the mistake of saying the Bitcoin blockchain is defined by the number of blocks. More blocks wins. That rule got baked into Bitcoin version 0.1.0, and that rule is completely busted. You know, the chain selection has to be work the most work, not the number of blocks. And sure enough, Bitcoin in the very early history arguably did a hard fork to go fix this because that was just totally busted. It was a terrible idea. Bitcoin also did a few other hard forks that were often, a lot of the stuff were things that we only realized recently going back in the old Git repo history and like looking very carefully at things Satoshi changed without telling anyone. So certainly in early history, when like barely anyone was involved, there were only, you know, probably a couple hundred nodes, yeah, you could get away with this stuff pretty easily. Now, well, an example of why it's hard to do a hard fork now is you have things like Start9 Labs who sell little self-contained Bitcoin boxes that a lot of people use, and there's no easy way to convince those people to go and upgrade their software to what you think is this new fancy version of Bitcoin. They could with enough convincing, and, you know, all this tail emission stuff is probably something that's, for Bitcoin at least, is only relevant to maybe 10 years out. You know, if I do enough of these talks, maybe we'll convince everyone. But 
I, I, I don't have my hopes up. Let's put it that way. And currently, the only set in stone reason why Bitcoin definitely needs to a hard fork is in the year 2132 or 2130, whatever it was, where literally the time field in blocks rolls over because it's 32 bits. And when that happens, Bitcoin ceases to work. And yeah, they'll have to hard fork then. But that is well past when mining rewards effectively go to nothing. So who knows what will happen. But there's another way to do it, which is Demirage. Now, what is inflation? Well, inflation is a tax on savings. I own money. It's being inflated away. Thus, monetarily speaking, I am losing money in proportion to the inflation. What's Demirage? Well, we just do this directly. We say that, well, if you have a transaction, if you have money on the chain, over time, the value of that goes down. And a lot of people kind of assume that Demirage couldn't be done without a hard fork, because certainly like, you need to make the values change somehow, right? Well, curiously enough, there's a way to go do it in a soft fork where it's just backwards compatible. Now remember, Bitcoin has transaction fees. Monero has transaction fees too. Well, you can do a rule where you take the sum of all of the inputs of the transactions, all of your VIs, times the time they've been in existence. Sum all of that money up, all of that Bitcoin days destroyed, if you will, and multiply it by some tax rate. And that's your tax for that block. That's your demurrage tax. And you can do something kind of clever, which is say, well, now Bitcoin miners have to have an output in their coin base equal to that amount. And that output goes into a pool of funds that all miners can spend from over time. So you're taking your demurrage tax, putting it into a pool, and then miners spend out of that pool. And every single thing I said can be implemented by adding new rules to Bitcoin that make previously valid blocks invalid. And that's the key thing. If you're running a Bitcoin node without Demirage implemented, you, all your node sees is for some reason miners gave away money. That's all they would see, which makes it a totally valid block and thus backwards compatible. Now, will miners implement this? I don't know. It's, it's really hard to go say. They certainly could from a technical perspective. And because we don't need the whole world of Bitcoin upgrade at once, this is much more feasible to add to Bitcoin. And if your tax rate is low enough, for the most part, people are going to notice. Because, I mean, what's the cost of security? Let's say you have a 1% tax over 50 years. That works out to be 64%. 0.5% over 50 years. That works to be 28%. By the time you get down to like 0.1%, it's like 5%. And of course, Bitcoin transactions already pay transaction fees. So um, other than very large transactions, you probably wouldn't notice any of this. And because transaction fees change over time, Bitcoin wallets are actually very resistant to, or very resilient in the face of changing transaction fees. If I go send you money and the transaction doesn't confirm, Bitcoin wallets have, a, you know, at least decent ones, have a way to replace that transaction with one sending even more money to fees. And if miners implement Demirage, that's probably what will happen, and this will just naturally work its way out. And the only times this will really be noticed is, you know, people moving, say, a million dollars worth of Bitcoin around. Then the 
then the fees over, say, a month or two of holding it start to add up. But for most part, you know, this can all be implemented backwards compatibly. And maybe looking at this from a different perspective, I mean, I like to point out, if you can't afford, you know, 5% over 50 years, the time you're likely to hold your coins, if all you do, you know, is start working when you're like 25 and live to your 75, I mean, what are you doing with your life? Like, certainly you're willing to pay 5% to keep your coin secure. You know, even if all you do is hodl, you do have an incentive to make sure coin continues to run. You know, the value of your coins are based on the fact that you can make a transaction now, sell those coins, and everything will work fine. You know, in the case of the Lightning Network, I mean, it's even more critical for Bitcoin mining to proceed in an orderly pace. Because if I have a Lightning Channel, certainly, you know, I can go send you a Satoshi with but a Satoshi worth of fees, I mean, I can do all this great stuff. But the only reason I can do that is because if my counterparty decides to screw me over, I can do an on-chain transaction to get my money back. Lightning is absolutely dependent on mining working, continuing to work, and just proceeding in a normal, boring pace. So yeah, Lightning channels should, in theory, welcome this. Yes, it means you'll spend a little bit of money, but, you know, it is what it is. We're much better off if this type of security always exists. And in, you know, and when you talk about the backwards compatible version where you're just taking a tax when transactions are spent, because you average this out over time, it doesn't matter that, you know, maybe some people will go not pay the tax for a while, other people will pay it sooner. Overall, it'll just result in a steady income supply for miners. And another argument I'll make is, well, if we're talking about, you know, 5% over 50 years, do you really think the Bitcoin price is going to be that stable over that period of time? I mean, that's the graph for just the past five years, and it's up like 250%. You know, the fact is, the cost of inflation for Bitcoin right now, and right now it's about 1.5% monetary, it's just a total wash. Economic shifts in the value of a coin matter far more than this tiny little bit of tax. Do you love coffee and Monero as much as we do? Consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans. And if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the Guatemalan farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, gratuitous, and Monero. So... As for Bitcoin, you know, should the supply be changed? Well, I'm not the only person who goes and thinks this. I mean, Andrew Polster is another well-known uh, Bitcoin uh, dev. And, uh, you know, at TabConf, was it two years ago, he said quite clearly, like, it's a scary change to the system as the subsidy goes down. And, you know, I myself, I've said this for a long time. I mean, Bitcoin should have had some kind of perpetual inflation. You know, in this case, I said 1%, but, you know, you can quibble on the exact amount. I mean, I think Monero did the right thing in fixing this problem. But, you know, with all that said, I also should point out the other thing Andrew Polster said, which was, uh, you know, he hates being on panels with podcasters because he's worried it'll uh, trick me into saying something stupid. And uh, I should go leave with uh, something you can quote me on, which is uh, kittens aren't adorable. You know, they'll make me real popular. So thank you.
That was fantastic, man. Well worth being forced into used uh, Bitcoin Lightning. Um, any questions? Thank you, Peter, for this talk. Um, so would the the merge be uh, applied only when there's a transaction or would that be applied when people don't move their Bitcoin? Uh... Well, in the software version, your only option is to do it when you spend the coin. Um, there's no, there's no, there's no way you can do it in a soft fork where you take the value from coins that haven't been spent. And one of the interesting things about this is since it would only apply to coins that get spent, in this case, the demurrage tax rate would actually apply to, roughly speaking, the economic um, monetary supply. Because coins that have been lost and just never moved, they'll never get the tax applied. So you can actually go and say, well, of the whole economic supply, we want, say, take maybe, you know, 0.5% per year or something. So it, it's, it's interesting how you can do that. Um, now, in a hard fork, absolutely, you could apply it to the raw number. But accounting-wise, Demirage sucks. You know, nobody wants to have accounting where the value, where the numbers themselves go down. You know, it's annoying to deal with in protocols like Lightning. There's no reason to do it other than to make it implementable. So in a hard fork, yeah, you'd never do it that way. You'd just go do it with tail emission or, you know, something else that uh, inflates the currency. Thank you. All right, who else? Uh, thanks, Peter. Two quick questions. Number one, does this then assume oh, with the Demirage, I'll call it a proposal, but with, with Demirage compatibility, it assumes that something like confidential transactions would never be adopted then on the base layer. Um, and then second, um, what's, I mean, so the Demirage is effectively then just an additional fee then on the per transaction basis when you're talking about what would be backwards compatible. So is this, um, to what extent do you think that this provides a further incentive for mining security as opposed to just miners hypothetically hyping, or hiking higher direct fees on transactions? Well, I mean, so, so I should speak to fees in general. Like fee, the fee market in Bitcoin is a very competitive market. Um, it's very difficult for miners to go hike fees because they'll be outbid by other miners who go who go take fees at lower rates. So, you know, fees on Bitcoin are really what they are. It's the supply of people willing to pay at the given amount. And miners don't have much control of this. Other than, you know, one way you can go and portray a soft fork for Demirage is colluding together to go add a new type of fee. I mean, that's that's one way you can go describe this. And I, I don't think that, that view of it's necessarily wrong. But... Going back to confidential transactions, I mean, first of all, I'll say I think Bitcoin implementing comp confidential transactions on the base layer is very unlikely. Um, it can be done as a soft fork with some very careful work, but ignoring that, ignoring the technical complexity, I think the bigger issue is that Bitcoin is extremely valuable. You know, you're looking at a system that right now market cap is probably like half a trillion dollars. The unfortunate reality is cryptography isn't that mature. And if you implement something like confidential transactions, you're dramatically increasing the risk of a technical failure that destroys the currency. Because if you have inflation and that's uncaught, with confidential transactions, it's very difficult to deal with this. You know, Zcash, as an example, had an inflation bug and it absolutely could have killed Zcash. There's no doubt about it. Bitcoin has had inflation bug. And there's no way it could have killed Bitcoin because any idiot with a calculator can go add the numbers up 
and say, oh yeah, obviously that transaction was bugged. Obviously we should go fix it by just not allowing overflow. Obviously the thing to do is just roll back a couple blocks and you know, go forward. I mean, it's, it's just so much easier from a technical perspective to deal with this. Now, if we're talking 20 years in the future, maybe the world's programming community would have more confidence in this. It might say it's worth the risks. But, you know, would we add confidential transactions to Bitcoin right now? I would argue against it purely on the basis of this is a really risky thing. Because if Bitcoin dies, you lose all that proof-of-work security and there's no guarantee that you'll ever get a Bitcoin bootstrapped again. You know, you could easily have, easily try to bootstrap Bitcoin again, and all all that happens is get 51% stacked over and over again. Like, it's just, it, I don't think it's worth the risk. Uh, but, hang on. But I will say, there's probably a way to do demurrage with confidential transactions that certainly only leaks the total amount of input. And there may be an even more clever way to do it where, for instance, you provide a proof to miners that then they're able to go collectively prove, yes, the total input to this block was this without revealing individual transactions. Because the nuance I didn't cover in my talk was that the reason why you would make a soft fork rule be there must be an output with a value equal to the sum is that in case transactions were one transaction is paying for a previous one, you actually want fees to be flexible. You don't want to say every transaction has to pay this amount of fees for the demurrage. You say, well, collectively it has to pay. However you figure out how to go do it, that's fine. So, you know, long story short is there may be ways, but I don't think the tech risk is worth it. Uh, so my question is, is the, is the software demurrage text opt-in for transaction authors? Well, I mean, right now you can opt into Demurrage by just paying more money. You know, it only has a purpose if by opt-in, if, if it's something that is applied to everyone. So the reason I ask this is if it's opt-in, then miners who don't enforce the Demurrage attack will have a competitive advantage over yeah, miners. Yeah, that's why it has to be done as a soft fork where the majority of hashing power collectively agrees we're going to do this. And ideally a soft fork where... You know, the significant, at least significant percentage of node runners agree that this is a good idea too. And, you know, I should point out, historically, soft forks in Bitcoin have been things where by the time the soft fork actually activates, certainly a strong minority and probably a supermajority of actual nodes doing actual economic transactions have upgraded to the new rules and decided that blocks that do not follow these rules will be rejected. I see. It's hard to, for me to keep track of the different difference between soft and hard forking because we only we only do hard forks. Well, you know, you, you guys have a lot more flexibility because Monero's tiny. I mean, Bitcoin's a very different animal. So what would you say is the best argument then against this demurrage approach, this potential of adding this to Bitcoin? What would be the best argument against doing it? I mean, so what, I think one argument against it would be, well, why don't you just go do tail emission and do a hard fork? But I think the broader argument is, regardless of exactly what approach you, you use, tail emission, demurrage, whatever, is why are you going to take all this risk, potentially splitting the community and creating a whole bunch of social media drama over something that may not be needed? Now, what I would say to that is, well, Bitcoin inflation rate right now is like 1.5%. 
it's roughly 10 years till it's about 0.1%. That's sort of the time frame when this type of thing should be implemented. Maybe in 10 years, we're going to find pretty strong evidence. No, no, the feed market really did develop. Well, you know, there's always a reason to mine a block. This isn't a concern. And that would be great. I hope that happens. But I would like the community to be ready. So, you know, I think that's your strongest argument against it. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the talk. Uh, I'm thinking about the Lightning Network. So the Demerage uh, solves the bookkeeping problem on-chain on for sure. But if you have Lightning, aren't then older channels a bit more fractional reserve compared to newer ones? And how would you solve it in the Lightning Network? Well, keep in mind, I mean, Lightning already has this issue where the value of a channel depends on the fees required to go close it. And for the most part, Lightning has not gone and put much, like I should say, Lightning implementations have not gone and put a lot of effort into keeping track of this. Um, Lightning channels do get occasionally closed because the estimated fee rate to do certain things has gone up too much and the two sides don't agree that the channel should remain open and they close on that basis. And this this is something that's implemented automatically. Now, if you were to go do this with Demirage, well, obviously, since the amount of money it takes Sorry, I should say, since the amount of money you get when you close the channel would diminish over time above and beyond fee changes, well, the obvious way to go do this is take advantage of the fee change code and say, well, on top of estimated fees, we know that the value is going down and just rebroadcast our estimated value of the channel so that the total amount takes this into account. Now, if you go with a number like, say, 0.1% you know, per year, Realistically, a lot of this needs to be papered over because it really doesn't matter that much. But certainly, if you tried to demorize it like 50% per year, you'd be utterly insane not to take this into account. And between the two options, I'm going to argue for something like 0.1% or 5, you know, 0.5%. That's a that's a much easier thing to deal with counting wise. Online question. All right, uh, Rucknium is asking, how much can you prevent miners from undercutting each other? Accepting low fee transactions, do you or orphan all blocks? Well, again, I mean, what I'm talking about is a Demarage soft fork. And a soft fork means that we now have this new rule that blocks must conform to. And in this case, the rule is, you know, you do your sum of inputs times this tax rate all. And in a soft fork, if miners try to undercut it, it's not that we're, you know, that they're undercutting, it's that they've created an invalid block. And since it's an invalid block, It'll just get ignored, and that's that. Now, if miners do this and the Bitcoin community as a whole disagrees, you certainly could be in a situation where a small percentage of miners are producing invalid blocks and people see you know, one confirmation on their transactions. But in general, I mean, frankly, this is why for at least large transactions, advice has always been one, you know, one confirmation isn't really enough. You really should wait a little more and, you know, for starters, I mean, it's normal for every once in a while for two blocks to get created at the same height. You know, sometimes you even get um, three, you know, even get like two block deep chains because you just out of luck. Two blocks get created at the same height, another two get created at the same height. Certainly by the time you get to like 10 confirmations, it's incredibly unlikely other than, you know, weird technical failures like the inflation bug in, was it, 2012 or so. But, you know, small... Small numbers of reorgs do happen on occasion, and that's just how it is. And it would it would go up in this case, but I suspect if miners actually do the soft fork, 
the miners who disagree with this will quickly just quit Bitcoin or adopt the new rule. Taxing the, the value of a transaction, are you concerned that this would further disincentivize transacting on layer one and moving to um, layer two and so on without having the security of layer one? Well, it doesn't though, because layer two, you know, all layer two systems depend on layer one. A lightning channel is a layer two system, but the value of the Bitcoin tied up in that lightning channel is dependent of the value on layer one. So there is no difference whether or not I hold my Bitcoin on layer one or layer two, because they all go back to layer one. You know, I personally have quite a bit of money tied up in lightning channels, and all those lightning channels are on-chain Bitcoin transactions. The only, you know, all lightning is doing is having this very clever system of lightning of, you know, transactions that aren't actually put on chain and carefully arranged with incentives and all this, but they're still transactions. You know, there's still money on chain. You know, and even in custodial wallets, like Wallet of Satoshi, where you are trusting Wallet of Satoshi with your balance, if Demiraj is implemented, they too would eventually have to say, well, actually, your balance goes down over time because we know that it will cost more money to actually move these coins on chain. You know, it's there really is no difference between layer one and layer two in this scenario. The most exciting thing that is happening in entire crypto right now is ordinals. BTC is more exciting than Ethereum at this present moment. Everyone is converging around BTC. Everyone is becoming a UTXO developer. So instead of imposing a mandatory system of taxation within Bitcoin, why not gradually increase the productive capacity of, minor, uh, of entrepreneurs to keep on growing an on-chain economy as we are witnessing right now in the past four months, it is very profitable to have this on-chain economy. It's very simple. Bitcoin, people like to be able to go run full nodes. You know, full nodes are how you go and validate yourself that your Bitcoin is real. I mean, full nodes are why, well, I mean, full nodes are why implementing tail emission is so difficult on Bitcoin because you got to get everyone to agree. Now, if Bitcoin was, you know, BSV and there were like less than a dozen full nodes out there, yeah, it'd be pretty easy to add tail emission, pretty easy to do all kinds of things. The market but, is giving you a solution, though. So why not work with the market in that solution instead of imposing mandatory taxation? Taxation is theft. Taxation is consensual theft. In the case of Bitcoin, we do have taxation. We have a 1.5% inflation rate. Everyone holding Bitcoins agreed to it. In the case of Monero, you know, you have your tail emission, which... I mean, I think on the numbers wise, it's like 0.5% monetary inflation, assuming no lost coins. It's probably like, you know, rough, so a bit, bit less than that, assuming lost coins, or bit, sorry, a bit more than that, assuming lost coins. You know, you all bought into this by choosing to buy Monero. It is, it is what it is. But the fact of the matter is, as long as people want to go and be able to easily run full nodes, that is incompatible with increasing block size. You know, we fought this battle, Bitcoin, before, and... The winning side was, yeah, we're going to go and implement Lightning. And if it means that people can't go and necessarily do ordinals the way that they want to, not my problem. You know, I personally have worked um, on something called RGB through my, you know, single seal proof partial ideas and so on. And long story short is I've worked with a team who are creating a way to trade tokens on Bitcoin with effectively unlimited scalability, you know, with one transaction per block. You could easily have a you know a couple billion transactions per second. 
how do you do that? Well, you make big Merkle trees and Merkle trees and Merkle trees. You know, and this is, could be a whole other talk. But that is the Bitcoin approach to this. We accept that the base layer is always going to be somewhat limited. And the trade-off is that when we, when we need to do more transaction per second, more interesting things, we throw software at it. Frankly, Lightning is really complex. Like the fact that Lightning works at all is a miracle of software engineering. But you throw enough smart people at it, and you can go get it to work. And Bitcoin accepts that trade-off. If you don't like it, have another currency. We have time for a few more questions. Um, and then we're going to do our proof of work versus proof of stake panel, which Peter will be on. So I think we'll take a little break so he can uh, get some water. But yeah, a few more questions just to round it out. Gianic and then Arctic. There's an online question. Um, a demerged soft fork doesn't fix the problem of the circulating supply eventually going to zero via lost coins. To fix that issue, would you prefer tail emission hard fork or a demerged hard fork? Well, keep so so. The question there is basically, in the long run, the supply of actual coins in existence that are tradable goes to zero as people like assuming a fixed supply of coins, the supply will eventually trend towards zero because people go lose coins. Now, I wouldn't call that a problem that really needs to be fixed. And the reason why is, again, the rate of lost coins, the absolute number of coins that are lost per second is a function of how likely people are to lose a coin and the total supply of coins that are not lost. Well, as that total supply goes down, that rate, the absolute rate also goes down. It has to. If there's a 1% chance of losing a coin per year, you know, whether or not there's 21 million coins or one, it's still a 1% chance, and that's why it's a curve. The only thing limiting, like the only technical reason you care about this is eventually the supply gets so low that divisibility matters. You know, and for that, we're talking probably hundreds, thousands of years out in the future. I'm not, frankly, I'm not care, I don't care about planning that far. Like, I'll be very, I'll, I'll think we'll be very lucky if computers exist 5,000 years into the future. And, you know, we can even like be, be here to, with, you know, electric lights. Like that implies, you know, human civilization survived that long. I also think it'll be quite lucky if Bitcoin's a thing that exists that long. I mean, I'm willing to plan on like 100 year time horizons, but, you know, 5,000 years, come on. My next question deals with planning over roughly a 15-year um, time horizon. So since the um, Bitcoin paper was written, and this is, you can technically verify this, uh, Nielsen's law, which is the ability of a um, home or small business um, bandwidth that you would get a home or small business in the United States, um, has increased roughly by a factor of 350 times. It's actually faster in the developing world. So my question to you is this, at what point is it reasonable for a coin like Bitcoin to actually increase that block size in order to allow some growth? Because obviously, as far as I can see, the ability to run a node today at 350 megabytes per block will be comparable to one megabyte back in 2008. Thanks. So the argument there is basically bandwidth increases mean that you can do a block size increase. And right away, I'll point out, well, we don't care about raw bandwidth. We care about censorship-resistant bandwidth. You know, we, we very much want it to be possible to run a Bitcoin node over Tor. And Tor has not gotten faster like raw bandwidth has. Also, all this stuff, 
all this stuff goes back to cost of storage of computes and so on. And the fact is, Moore's law is dying. Like, you just got to go look at the cost per transistor, and it is not decreasing like it used to. You know, the cost for storage is kind of looking kind of shoddy, like it's just not decreasing like it used to. There are limits to computation, and I will not make the bet that in 15 years, we see dramatic decreases in the cost of bandwidth, cost of storage, and the cost of compute. You know, we've had an incredibly good run. We've been very, very lucky, but the how computers are built is getting to things where feature sizes are on the order of atoms. You know, nobody knows how to make a transistor smaller than one atom. I mean, what would, it, what would it even be made out of? And yet our transistors are countable numbers of atoms already. And realistically, we'll probably run into problems before that. I mean, it's just not a good bet. And the fact is, the Bitcoin community is quite happy to go on with the way it is. Now, will the discussion look different in 100 years? Maybe. Maybe it will in 10 years. But until it does, no one's going to change. I am very willing to take the counterparty to that bet. And this is where I'm holding Monero. Well, go for it. All right. The Monero market cap's a lot less. That's that's a good good line to wrap it up on. I, I got to take advantage of that one, Peter. <laughs> Huge round of applause for Peter Todd. Thank you, man. Thank you.